From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, quick ask. If you find this podcast to be at all supportive to you and you're looking for a way to support us as we do our work here on the show, one simple and deeply awesome way to do that is to subscribe to our app. We here on the podcast are constantly working with the folks over at the app. Those are the people who produce our guided meditations and produce our really incredible courses. And while we're researching ideas for the show, we often consult with our colleagues over on the app, plus the world-class meditation teachers who work on the app to make sure that we're getting things right here on the show. In fact, you may hear many of the teachers who are on the app here on the show going deep with me. So again, if you found this podcast to be helpful or inspiring or amusing, we really think you'll like the app as well. So you can check it out for free. You can get a 30-day free trial at 10percent.com slash try. 30 days for free. If you don't like it, deuces. That is 10%, all one word, spelled out, dot com slash try. Hello, fellow suffering beings. We've got another themed week for you with two episodes about how to navigate major life changes. Clearly a extremely resonant theme given the various dumpster fires that are raging in our world right now, messing many of us up. Coming up on Wednesday, we're going to get a deep Dharma take on this subject. But today, we've got a guest who takes a more journalistic slash scientific approach. His name is Bruce Feiler. He has a new best-selling book called Life is in the Transitions. In it, he offers seven tools for navigating what he calls life quakes, which can range from divorce to job loss to addiction. Bruce has, by way of background, written a whole series of best-selling books, including Walking the Bible and Council of Dads, which then became a TV show on NBC. He did not mean for this new book on transitions to come out during a pandemic, but the timing is perversely perfect. In this conversation, we talk about the events in his own life that got him interested in the subject, why lifequakes are a feature, not a bug, and why the word resilience makes Bruce grumpy. Here we go, Bruce Feiler. All right, well, nice to see you. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Dan, thank you for having me. What? How would you describe the, the thesis of this book? I'm debating whether I should start right with the thesis or tell you how I came to the thesis. So I'll, I think I'll do the second way because I didn't go into this project with a thesis, but a big blinking thesis showed up halfway through. So... What happened and kind of what led me into this, kind of, and in some ways what this book is about is how we deal with these big wrenching changes in our lives, right? That I call a life quake. And a life quake is what we're in now. <laughs> and I got interested in these because I went through a life quake some years ago, as you know. First, I got cancer as a new dad. That was the same year as the Great Recession and my family was hit very hard. And then my dad who has Parkinson's lost control of his mind. This was a man who was never depressed a minute in his life, and he tried to take his life six times in 12 weeks. And this was a kind of a big crisis in every way you can have a crisis. The conversations that we had to have were unhavable. <laughs> I like difficult conversations, and these were difficult conversations that were impossible to have. But I'm the story guy, and I'm the meaning guy, and one morning, one Monday morning, I woke up and I said, well, here's an idea. Like, what if I send my dad a question? Because my dad was always a bit of a storyteller. And I sent him a question, like, what toys did you play with as a kid? He couldn't move his fingers at this point, Dan. And, but he thought about it all week. He dictated his answer to Siri, who spit it out. He began to edit it, and it worked. And so I'm like, I'll send him another one. Like, tell me about the house you grew up with. And this went on essentially every Monday morning for what became years. Tell me about the... How'd you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you join the Navy? How'd you meet mom? And this man who had never written anything longer than like a three-sentence memo in his life backed into writing a 50,000-word autobiography. And I got very interested in like times of crisis in our lives, like it, it's a narrative event in some way. And it turns out there's a whole field, narrative gerontology. There's a whole field of narrative adolescence and narrative medicine and kind of storytelling was just becoming kind of a thing that people talked about at that time. 
And so what happened, and you know, this makes me think of your own life and how you ended up in this conversation, is when I began to tell the story to people, everybody had a similar story. My wife had a headache and went to the hospital and died. My daughter tried to kill herself. I had a nervous breakdown on live television in your case. And, and I thought, well, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. And let me see what I can figure out. Because what people were saying is like, the life I'm living is not the life I expected. Like I'm living life out of order in some way. And I called my wife one night and I said, I got to figure out how to help. And I don't know what I'm going to find and I don't know how to do it, but I feel compelled to do this. And so I set out on this journey, what became three, four years crisscrossing the country, collecting what became hundreds of life stories of Americans, all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states, and you name it. They had people who lost homes, lost limbs, changed careers, changed genders, changed religions, got sober, got out of bad marriages. And at the end of it, I had, it was powerful, but it was like too much. I mean, I had 6,000 pages of transcripts, 1,000 hours of interviews, and I ended up doing something I've never done in 30 years of writing books. I got a whole team of people, and we spent a year coding these stories, combing through them, debating them, kind of beating one another against the head, trying to figure out what was the big message, what was the big theme coming out of it. And so that's the backstory, and now I can answer your question. So the big idea that emerged out of this was that the linear life is dead. The idea that you and I grew up with, that you're going to have one home, one job, one relationship, one spirituality, one source of happiness from adolescence to assisted living, like that's just gone. And it's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life, which has many more twists and turns, and that involves many more life transitions. And so my book then gets into kind of a toolkit for how to navigate them. And kind of my point is that this is a skill that we all must have. Like this is a lifelong skill of a lifelong sport that no one's teaching us how to play. And I've been thinking this for years. I've been working on this for half a decade. And the book arrives, lo and behold, at this moment when the entire planet is going through a life transition at the same time. You use terms like a disruptor and a life quake. What what do those terms mean and what's the difference? So the essence of the nonlinear life is a series of changes that we all go through in the course of our lives. And one of the big themes that emerged from these conversations is that the number of these changes is going up, the variety of them is getting broader, and the span in our life that they happen is getting wider. So this kind of myth of the midlife crisis that everyone's going to, the whole idea of passages, book in the 1970s that sold 20 million copies, said everyone does the same thing in their 20s same thing in their 30s, and then everyone has a midlife crisis at 39 and a half. Like, that's all gone. We have these changes across our lives. And so what I did was I teased them out, and I, it turned out there were 52 of these. I call the fundamental base unit of change a disruptor. And I use that word very intentionally because they're not all crises. They're not even all negative. Like, some of them are positive. Getting married is a disruptor. Having a child is a disruptor. Choosing to change jobs or to move that's a disruptor. So a disruptor is the basic unit of change. My data show that we go through three dozen in the course of our lives. That's one every 12 to 18 months. And most of them we get through. We're pretty good at adapting to change. It, it, it turns out we go through a bit of discomfort. We rally around our friends. We adjust our lives. We kind of tweak our life story and then we move on. But one in 10 of those becomes a massive change. And that's what I call a life quake. And I call it a life quake because it's higher on the Richter scale of consequences and the aftershocks last for years. And so these life quakes, they can be voluntary, moving, changing religions, leaving a bad marriage, involuntary, your spouse cheats on you, you get fired, you lose your limbs in an accident, you get a diagnosis. But a life quake is the event, but how you get through it is the life transition. And it's interesting because this is, the thing I think that's landing at the moment that this book is landing is the life quake is the pandemic. The life quake is the virus. It's the shock that we all took and that we're all taking and it's going to last for years. But on the one hand, it's a collective involuntary life quake in my terminology. But what's interesting is that the way we experience it is different. So you may make, be making a job change. Someone else may choose to get sober. Someone else may choose to leave a bad marriage or to have a baby or delay having a baby. So 
it's interesting because we're all going through this together on the one hand, but on the other hand, the way each of us is going to respond to it, the transitions that are going to come out of it are going to be different depending on who we are and where we are and what circumstances we face in our lives. I'm going to jump the gun here because I want to get deeply into the toolkit, the fact that these are how we handle a transition is, is there are skills that we can develop. But I just, you know, when people talk about the pandemic and we're all in it together, we're all in the same boat, it's often been said, you know, we're not, some of us are in yachts and some of us are on rafts. And so it's a loaded proposition in my mind to talk about skills or you're handling this better, but because so many of us are, we're so much more vulnerable to this life quake than others. Well, this is, you know, I have a couple of reactions to that. So I created, I analyzed all these life quakes. That was sort of the essence of what it was. And let me just say that they, I did them on two different categories, on two different matrix uh, or axes, if you will. One was voluntary or involuntary. Okay, and that was more or less 50-50. 47% of people's life quakes were voluntary, people choosing to make a change. 53% were involuntary. And what's interesting is that I was born in 1964, which is nominally the tail end of the baby boom. And I looked at this and I thought, wow, 47% of our life quakes, like, cool, like we're getting the nonlinear life. We're getting the idea. We've, we've inhabited the idea that we can change our lives. I had a bunch of millennial coders on my team and they looked at this and were like, whoa, 53% of life quakes are involuntary. They were still kind of clinging to the mythology that they were going to be able to control their lives. The other a metric I used was collective or personal. So personal is something that happens to you and a collective is something that happens to a large group of people. So the smallest category was collective involuntary life quake. So a collective involuntary life quake would be a natural disaster. Right? I talked to, to somebody, a preacher in Joplin, Missouri, that was the most devastating tornado that the country had ever seen. Um, 9-11 was the one that came up most commonly. I talked to a professor at NYU named Naomi Clark, who was born male-bodied and always felt that something was off, had never heard the idea of transgender or the idea that she might be a woman because she was male-bodied. And she was caught downtown on 9-11, covered in ash. And she thought, I may lose, she was a game designer at Lego at the time. And she thought, I may lose my job. My parents and friends may shun me, but I've now come face to face with an existential moment. I would rather be alone and be true to myself than not be true to myself. And that became the motivation that inspired her to go through the transition and become a woman. She actually threw, we'll get into this later in the toolkit, she actually threw a hormone party because people use rituals in these moments. So 9-11 came up with, and there's a line in my book, Dan, like, you know, speaking writer to writer here, like a throwaway line that had I done these conversations a century ago, <laughs> there would have been many more collective involuntary life quakes. There were two world wars and depression. And it showed, I mean, my, I think my line is something like it shows that we're kind of more me oriented uh, and we go through these things alone. And then suddenly here's this collective involuntary life quake that we're all going through. But since you did tease that we're going to talk about the toolkit, I think what happened was when we first went in it, there was a period of profound denial. Like, we're going to stay home, we're going to beat it, and things are going to go back. <laughs> and of course, that's one of the things that happened. We now know, some months into this, that we're not going back. So the thing I want to say is that the experience of going through what I think is very profound, and now I want to address the point you just made about how it feels. One of the things that surprised me most, but that was very clear, and that frankly is not in the literature of human psychology and development, that I have seen, and, and God knows I know that literature, tried to know that literature very well, is that these disruptors, they tend to clump. They tend to gather together. Just when you get fired, you know, you, you wreck the car. Just when you're going to move, your daughter is found out to have an eating disorder and your mother-in-law needs cataract surgery. And I think that that is what I've been thinking about in the pandemic, because I think that what, and I struggled with what to name this, for months, I couldn't figure out, like, why was it happening? And I eventually came to call it a pileup from, like, the old black and white movies, you know, where the first car stops and then the second car wrecks and then the, ne then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. And so some of this is coincidental. Some of this is like a last straw. But really what I've become convinced has happened in a lot of cases, it's as if our immune system gets weakened. 
it gets weakened by one difficult thing that we're going through. And so when something that is small that we might be able to beat back comes along, we get sick a, a second time. And that's what I think is going on in the pandemic. So the pandemic is a massive pileup. So we have this economic challenge. We have the emotional challenge. We're working from home. We're, we're suddenly having to adjust our work-life balance. Like, you know, do I have a job? Should I quit my job to take care of my children? Like, what am I going to do with my aging parents? This is what I'm facing, what you're facing, what everybody is facing. And so I think that our immune system is weakened. And so therefore, other problems that we have, some problem in our marriage, a drinking problem, you know, an anxiety problem, something that may have been tamped down when we're just in the rush of normal life seems more acute because we don't have as much power in our emotional metabolism systems in order to beat it back. So, but within this framework, how do you think about the fact that people of color or the economically disadvantaged have just taken so much more of a hit? Would you just think of it that their, their lives have had way more lifequakes, disruptors, pileups heading into this. So that's what made them more vulnerable. Right. So I think, I, I think a couple of things about this. First of all, in general, <laughs> this is a situation where it doesn't discriminate against anybody. Anybody can get the virus. But what's happened is in certain communities, in certain families, in certain individuals who are already have a weakened immune system because of economic disadvantages or structural racism or any other reasons, this has exacerbated those problems. It's almost exactly the same point. But there's another dimension to this actually that I think is very interesting because I normally don't get to talk about this, but we have the luxury of time here. The pandemic is a collective involuntary life quake. We're also going through another collective life quake and it's Black Lives Matter and it's the protest movement. And I think it's an interesting question that we may spend decades trying to unravel is that why? Why was it George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, Ahmed Arbery, I'm here in Georgia as we're having this conversation. Why now when these problems have been here arguably for 400 years and this particular problem certainly for dozens, if not hundreds of months? I think the answer is because of the pileup phenomenon, which is to say that the collective body of the country was already weakened by the pandemic. It highlighted the problems that had been tamped down. And so suddenly one of the things that manifested is a collective voluntary life because we wanted to do something. There was, there was some act of agency. That's, of course, another thing that we can get into in this conversation is, right, these life quakes are meaning vacuums. And there are times when we rethink the building blocks that give us meaning. And I, of course, have three in my book, the ABCs of meaning. One of them is agency what we do, act, make, create. One of them is belonging, our relationships, friends, neighbors, colleagues. And the C is a cause, a calling, something higher than ourselves. And what happens in lifequakes is we rebalance them. And so suddenly in the middle of the pandemic lifequake, we decide we want to do something and we want to have a cause and we want to have a community. That's A, B, and C in my model. And out we go into the streets because it had been building up. Our immune system was weakened. And that's a, almost like a perfect example that life craze can be not just negative, but also positive. Hmm. We keep teasing the toolkit, and I promise we'll get to it, but just one more sort of uh, foundational question here. You talked about life now being nonlinear. Hmm. What changed? Yes. When was it linear, and what came to disrupt that? I continue to think a lot about this question, but let me tell you what happened, because it was kind of super interesting, which is to say... Going back three or four years now, it was one of those moments in my life, Dan, I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to understand it. I, like I pulled a book off of a bookshelf and the bookcase opened and there turned out to be another book in, the, in a whole other room in the library, if you know what I'm saying. But it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, no one told me that there was a secret passageway in this library and now I'm in this new room and here's what was in the new room. What was in the new room was this idea that for me was new and electrifying which was our lives have shapes and every culture has a kind of paradigmatic shape and that's how we think our lives are going to follow. And so what I mean by that is like how we look at the world affects how we look at our life. So in the ancient world, you know, I've spent a lot of time, of course, in the ancient world, I wrote my books traveling around the Middle East, looking at stories of 
you know, religion and spirituality and politics and conflict. So in the ancient world, they had no linear time. So they thought life was a cycle because that was the agricultural calendar. And so to every season, turn, 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 and they thought life was a cycle. The Bible in the West introduces the idea of linear time. And as you know, in my book, I found these things in the Middle Ages. They literally had these hundreds and hundreds of graphs of your life was a staircase up to middle age. You then peak and then you go down. Incredibly rigid, men and women alike. Okay, that means no new love at 40, no second career at 50, no divorce and starting over at 70, no, you know, moving to a new place and opening a and b at 80, none of that. Straight up and straight down. And what's important about that is the way we all grew up, it was the opposite. Middle age was the bottom. So this all changes with the birth of science 100 plus years ago, when suddenly this was the industrial revolution. And so suddenly life was linear. So if you think the first century of psychology, you have been as steeped in this as anybody in the last 10 years. Piaget with linear childhood development, Freud, psychosexual stages, Erickson, the eight stages of moral development. Erickson, in fact, says that it was modeled on the conveyor belt, okay? And the five stages of grief, the hero's journey, these are all linear constructs. And this reaches its peak with Gail Sheehy in passages She takes some flimsy research done by Dan Levinson at Yale, where he interviewed 40 people, only men. Roger Gould at UCLA about sent out some questionnaires about a midlife crisis, and she popularizes the idea of the midlife crisis. She says everyone does the same thing in their 30s and their 40s, and then everyone has a midlife crisis. Literally, Dan, this says it must start at 39 and must end at 44 and a half. Dan Levinson only interviewed men. Elliot Jock, who originally came up with the midlife crisis idea, he said he didn't even talk to anybody. He did this in the 50s. He only read biographies of famous men. And he said, I couldn't do women because menopause throws the whole thing off. That shows you that it's absurd. Um, I, I can't say, because I didn't do these conversations in the 70s, that it was totally bunk then. And passages land is because divorce was just becoming popular, dislocation, and there was a lot of this going on. But now I can tell you that it does not apply now. It's just flat wrong. But even more important, we now know that chaos theory and complexity and neuroscience, we now know that life has periods of stability and periods of instability, periods of periodicity, they call it, and non-periodicity. With the web and complexity and network theory, we now know that we understand that the world is complex and non-linear, but we haven't updated our view of our lives. And that, I mean, you asked me at the beginning of this, you know, kind of my theme, kind of my mission in some ways is to open up the possibility that our lives can take all different shapes. That's an empowering thing in our lives. And then what I want to do in the toolkit is to empower you to then take control of your life transitions. And I will tell you this book, I've been doing this for 30 years, you know this, I've never had something land like this. And then visceral reaction people have. And what they're saying is, I feel relief. I feel like I'm not alone, that you have given me permission to have the crazy, difficult, upsetting, nonlinear life that I've had. And I've been suffering in silence because of it. So this shape thing is absolutely central. And the the last question I asked in each of in 225 three-hour interviews was, what shape is your life? And people had all sorts of shapes. Some were lines, some were circles, some were objects. And it turns out people's shapes reflect their priorities, kind of which of the ABCs of meaning that they care about. You know, I'm a line. I mean, so let me ask you, what, what shape is your life? I was just thinking about that. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, so tell me, what's the first thing? Don't think about it too much. What shape embodies your life? The word circles coming to mind, but I don't have any data to support it sounded like a nice thing to say. So what happened to me, why I got into this is I have a friend, Michael, he grew up a a kind of abused kid in New Jersey, was always interested in the arts and creativity. He became a, uh, he he went into the beauty business and the hair business and he's an artist. And so one day I'm talking to him, I've known him for a while. And I said, what shape is your life? Because I was obsessed with this question. And he said, a heart. I said, no, no, you don't understand, Michael. I'm asking you what shape, like what's the, the ups and downs of your life? He's like, No, the heart is the shape of my life. I'm like, 
Michael, you don't understand. He said, Bruce, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm telling you, I don't look at my life as the ups and downs of my life. Relationships are the most important thing to me. That's why it's a hard. And if I have these relationships then the ups and downs of my work life, hmm. I don't care about as much. And I was like, whoa, there's something going on in the world that I have not been thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to like adjust my classes, you know? And so this is what happened. And so I would ask people, and, it, and this was the hardest thing for me to figure out. So, because people would say everything. They'd say butterflies. They'd say, you know, they'd say, my wife, Linda, uh, works with entrepreneurs. And she said, a light bulb. I mean, people would say twists and turns and hearts and houses. And I was like, what is, this is like a party game. That's like, you're drunk at three in the morning and nobody cares. And I eventually realized that we have these ABCs of meaning and the shape corresponds to the ABCs of meaning. So people who tend to be work-oriented or creators, that's what you threw me a little bit. I would have guessed you would have said a line. Like, I would have said a line, up and down line, because I think of my life. I revise my answer. It's an up and down line, but that trends upward inexorably, yes. To trends upward, okay? Because you're a creator and a writer, and that makes total sense. You've had some ups and downs. But, but some people, because we're agency-oriented, you're agency-oriented, I'm agency-oriented, but there's a lot of people out there that are relationship-oriented. My wife, Linda, as you know, works with entrepreneurs around the world. She, she's like, the shape of my life is a light bulb. I like to help other people make their dreams come true. And some people could be a, a boxing. Like if you're, a, someone said lettuce because they're into plant-based medicine. So we all have these ABCs within us. I'm an ABC. So I would say agency first, then I'm incredibly belonging oriented. I'm a very hands-on dad, very family oriented. I work by myself. I have a lot of friends. I'm less cause oriented. Linda is a C-A-B. So she's cause first and then agency and belonging is at the end for you. So how would you rank your ABCs? I'm thinking about your friend Michael, the, who said that his heart, that his life was shaped like a heart. I'm, I'm writing a book right now. And one of the things I'm writing about, and my thoughts on this are not fully formed. And when they are fully formed, they'll most likely be just stolen from other people. But this notion of individualism, hmm. rugged individualism, having a pretty pernicious impact on the Western mind, particularly Western men, where for me, my self-worth, my mood has for so long been caught up in the ups and downs of my career. Whereas I was very moved, and I think you were too, by what Michael said, whereas, you know, like things can go up and down, but I, I'm not so buffeted by those particular wins because it really rests on relationships. And that's a more collective view. I don't have the answer yet to the ABC question, but that's what's on my mind as I listen to you speak. Most of the answers and most of the ideas in my book were not gendered, I would say. And we, we, we talk about the phases of transitions, which, which we're going to get into in a second, and the tools and the life quakes. Most of these were not gendered. There were a few things that were gendered. And I would say that the, that the people who identified belonging as their primary pillar of the ABCs of meaning did slightly favor women over men. Not entirely. Michael's a man. He's a gay man. But he is a man. But what happens in the life quakes is that we shape shift, is that we reimagine. So maybe we've been working very hard and either we've been, we choose to, or we've been forced to leave a job and we say, I want to spend more time with our family. Or maybe we've been a primary caretaker and we become an empty nester or a loved one who, you know, an aging parent that we're taking care of dies and we say, we want to give back. Or maybe we've been giving back and we burn out and we say, we want to do something for ourselves. So some people are cause-oriented from the beginning, but later on might want to do something more for themselves. So the way I think about this visually, and, and maybe this you know, will, will you know, affect you as you're thinking about your book, is Lady Justice, right? With the two scales, think of Lady Justice as having three scales. One of those is agency, and one of those is belonging, and one of those is cause. And at various times in our life, we take pebbles and we move them from one to the other to rebalance because we tend to either choose to or get forced to be too, too oriented toward one of those at various times in our lives. And if we get too overweighted in one, we're just naturally going to want to change. So that's the point I want to make with the ABCs, though people tend to 
I'd say have a kind of a, a core construct here to use the psychological term. There's one that's kind of our defining one. We do all have all three of them in us, and but we also change. Back to the idea of nonlinearity, I'd like to completely reject the idea that you're one thing or the other, that you have one love language forever or one trait that you need to exercise in your work life or one aspect of your personality that you need to display. I think that that is a legacy, to use the construct of this conversation, of the linear life that you take a test at 22 and determine a bunch of things about yourself and that can decide every decision that you make the rest of your life, that is a real disservice we've done to people. Because in fact, we evolve, we change, we're nonlinear, and that's something that we should embrace. And I want to reject the idea that it's one thing and that's who you are and you're stuck there uh, at 22 on. Yeah, well, that jives with the core thesis of everything I, my team and I do under the 10% 10% happier banner, which is that uh, the mind is trainable. Yes. And that's radically empowering good news. I would answer along those lines your question to say that I think I am an ABC endeavoring to gently transition to BCA. Interesting. That, 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 I mean, everything I know about you, uh, your, your public life and your writing totally makes sense with me. <laughs> well, I think I am acculturated and wired to be pretty selfish. And I don't believe that change happens effectively or successfully with a sledgehammer. I think it happens through the pleasure centers of the brain. And I think that was the route the Buddha took to the extent that I understand the route the Buddha took. And so seeing that the B and the C make me happier than just the A has been the route that I'm taking towards structuring my life in that direction and also doing a lot of meditation practices that incline you in that direction. So again, I'm a Mr. 10%, so it's not an overnight transition, and I don't think it's something I can bully myself into, but it's it's a worthwhile project. So I want to say two things about that. I thought that was very well expressed. I want to highlight what you said, throwaway line that I want to put some attention on in a second, which is that the brain is wired that way. When I was talking earlier about where do these paradigmatic shapes come from, they come from how we look at the world, right? So in the in agricultural age, we thought it was cyclical. In the Middle Ages, which was a religion-dominated age, we thought we had followed a certain path. And the idea of science and kind of linearity, an idea which is sort of fundamental to the beginnings of the Galileo and the beginnings of the whole idea of of Western science, a change, and I said it's changed, right? We now know that life is nonlinear, and one of the ways we know that is because we can look inside the brain. And it turns out that the brain, which is not how they talked about in the first century of psychology, has mirror, ne- mirror neurons, has the capacity to change, has the capacity and the desire to remake itself. That is fundamentally a nonlinear way of understanding the mind. And I think neuroscience has helped us to change how we view the world, but we are laggards in changing how we look at our lives. That's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing will tee up the conversation that you've you've been teasing all along, (laughs) which is that what we've learned, and you've been at the forefront of this conversation for the last decade, is whether it's happiness or habits, that we can break down these essential tools of our lives into these small components, into small wins and small victories and 10% movements here or there, and that can have a big change in our lives. So we know that our souffle is not going to get souffle or our tennis game is not going to get better. We know that we have to work on our bodies. We know that we have to work on our relationships. Transitions, like how we get through these turning points in our lives have been left out. Mm. Life is in the transitions. Like we're talking about this book that I wrote. Like this is the first major book on my transitions in 40 years. This is the first new model that we're about to discuss in 50 years. You can actually say even almost 100 years. This is something that's been out of favor. And so I have been sitting on this story 
for, as I said, five years, right? I thought we need to be talking about transitions. Like everybody needs to understand, like this is a skill we've got to have and no one's teaching it to us. And I've been bursting at the seams to tell people this. And then for something that I could spend the rest of my life trying to understand, it lands at this moment where everybody knows that we're in a life quake and everybody knows we've got to make some change and no one's had to do it. And that's why there's this visceral hunger to this. That's why this book is on every bestseller list. That's why I went through six printings in the last 12 days. It's like people have a hunger for this and the moment has demanded it of it. And so that attitude that you have about micro, medium-sized changes as the route to big changes, that is singing my song. And let's add, I'd like to add transitions to that group of things that we know can get better with 10% incremental change here or there. More of my conversation with Bruce Feiler right after this. So let's talk at long last about the toolkit. Oh, we're out of time. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) I think people by now are probably very interested in learning. So what can we do to handle these life quakes better? So you get into a life quake and I would say kind of one of two things happen. And I'm kind of guessing what you would be. So I won't even ask you, but you're welcome to chime in. We either make a 217 item to-do list, like we're going to be manic and we're going to get through it and we're going to like, you know, master this moment, or we get stuck, frozen in place and are in a fetal position in our, you know, on our bed. Look at enough of these as I have done and certain patterns become apparent. So the first thing to know is that there's going to be part of this process that you're good at. So transitions have three phases. The first phase is what I call the long goodbye, where you are saying goodbye to the life that you left behind. The second phase is what I call the messy middle, where you're shedding certain habits, mindsets, lifestyles, and you are creatively inventing this new self of yours. And then the last phase is the new beginning, where you're finally going to unveil this new self to the rest of the world and update your life story. So there are three phases. So for the first century, people talked about this because I know you like to geek out on the science. I'm going to geek out on the science for a minute here. This idea was invented by a guy named Arnold Van Gennep, who was a German anthropologist 100 years ago, who invented the phrase rites of passage. Who would have thought that would be a phrase you invented? In fact, his translator says, instead of rites of passage, it should be rites of transition. And he said that there are these three phases and you must do them in order because, hello, this was the linear life moment. First, you must say goodbye. Then you must go to, he called it this betwixt and between, and then you have the new beginning. Okay. He likened it, in fact, to leaving one room, walking down a hallway, and then entering a new room. Okay. Turns out this is totally wrong. So there are these three phases. I think that's very well captured. But you walk out of one room, you're in the hallway, oh, you forget something in the old room, you go back, you know, then there's a new room, you peek around the corner, but you're not ready for it, and you go back to the messy mill. Imagine if you're divorced. Let's just say you're a divorced person with children. You can be starting a new relationship in that new room, but you're still parenting with your old spouse in the old room, you're constantly going back. So it turns out that people do these out of order, okay? So, and everybody is good at one of these three phases, I call it your transition superpower. And one of them you're bad at, your transition kryptonite, okay? So for example, some people are bad at saying goodbye. Maybe they're people pleasers. Maybe they don't want to disappoint people. They stick around too long. They're overly scared of what's going to come. And so they stay around. But some people are good at saying goodbye, okay? I talked to a woman, Nina Collins, whose mother died. She's a mixed race daughter of a black mother and a Jewish father. The father is not in the picture. Her mother dies at 19 and and Nina has to raise her younger brother. She's gone on to have three marriages and twice as many jobs. She said, my mother died. I'm very good at saying goodbye. Like my therapist says that I underattach to things. So some people are bad at goodbye and some people are good. Same thing with the messy middle. When I originally called it the muddled middle, and I was talking to a woman named Rosemary Danielle in my hometown of Savannah, Georgia, who had a really tough childhood. Her mother took her own life. She had three marriages and 
her first husband was abusive to her. The second husband confessed to incest on their honeymoon. The third husband leaves her. And then she said, I'm tired of being with these kind of artsy people. And she said, I, I want a macho man. And she went and she wrote a memoir called Sleeping with Soldiers. She like lived on an oil tanker. She dated only soldiers and bikers. And she married an army trooper and they've been married for 30 years. And so when I said, how was the muddled middle? And she's like, I, what are you talking about? I loved it. I was sexual freedom for me. I finally got over all of my childhood hangups and it was difficult, but I loved it. I talked to a guy, Rob Adams, who was a management consultant from the Midwest. He was hired to run the Simon Pierce Glass Company, a family-owned glass company in Vermont. You may have gotten something for your wedding from the Simon Pierce Glass Company. He starts work a month after the Great Recession. Sales drop by a third in the first quarter. And it just wasn't going to work. And he said he he stuck around way too long before it finally, he said, I was bad at saying goodbye. I like being a leader. I like being a mentor. I moved my family to Vermont. Once I finally said goodbye, I'm a consultant. Like, I like the messy middle. I made lists. I consulted with 20 people. And a few months later, he moves his family to Africa and he starts running a nonprofit. So the most difficult phase for most people, the messy middle, some people are good at. Even the new beginning, which you think that most people would be great at, it's actually difficult for some people. I talked to a woman named Lisa Ludovici. She was born in Pennsylvania. She came from a broken family. Like no one in her family even came to her college graduation from Penn State. She was homeless, lived in her car for a while. She works for radio and she takes a job at this new company no one ever heard of called America Online, mm -hmm. selling ads. 15 years and 10 reorgs later, she's a powerhouse ad executive in New York City. She also has had three migraines a week since she was three years old. She logs onto a conference call one day, early, no one knows she's there, and her colleagues are talking about how sour she is. She goes home, combs through her Amex bills, walks in the next day, quits on the spot, stops going out to eat, stops shopping, cuts her cable, says, I can live for a while. Like 10 days in, she's watching local access television. She sees a conversation with somebody and she says, that's what I want. I want to help people get better. She enrolls in life coach school. She flies to Santa Fe. Three days in, her head's on the table. The teacher walks in. Why is your head on the table? Lisa says, oh, I've had three migraines a week since I was three. Don't worry. This is nothing. Teacher says, come with me. Takes her to her office, puts her in a chair, hypnotizes her. Lisa has never had a migraine since. Today, she's the country's leading medical hypnotist. She works with VA students, veterans. She says she's made this change. She is embarrassed to unveil her new self. She sits over her computer writing and rewriting her LinkedIn profile for six months because she's, people are going to think it's weird. I had this like powerhouse job and now I'm like a medical hypnotist. And finally she presses it and she feels this incredible relief because she's finally shared with others that she's in the new life. So everybody is going to be good at one of these phases and bad. And so kind of my first advice is, one of the things I do in the book is walk you through the process of figuring out which one you're good and which one you're bad at. Let's start with the one you're good at and don't have to do them in order. They're nonlinear. Start with the one you're good at, build some confidence because some phase is going to be difficult and we want to work our way there uh, as we go through these transitions. You talked earlier about, in terms of the toolkit, about ritual. Yeah. There are seven tools, it turns out. Most of these ideas, as I said, just came out of these things. They're not in the, in the literature. They just came out of this incredible analysis I did of all of these. So the first of the tools is accept it, right? It's like accept that this is an emotional thing. I look 225 people in the eye and I ask them what I'm going to ask you. Think of some life transition you have been in the past or that you're in right now. What's the biggest emotion you struggled with in that transition? Uh, so now I have aging parents. It takes up not a small amount of my bandwidth and time. Sadness. Sadness. Okay. I have aging parents too. In fact, I'm going to leave this. I'm having this conversation with you in my hometown of Savannah. I'm really going to leave and go see my dad who's in hospice as we speak. Oh, I'm sorry. So the number one emotion that people struggle with is fear. Okay, fear of the unknown, what's going to happen, how can I live without money, like how am I going to get through this, what's it going to be like to have a child with special needs? So number one is fear. Number two, Dan Harris, welcome to the club. Sadness. I'm sad. I liked that old self. I, I liked that life with vibrant parents or 
a living spouse or having legs or having a job. The third, back to your male-female thing, the third is shame. Hmm. And by the way, most of the literature of shame suggests that it's gendered and it is not gendered. Just as many men feel shame as women feel shame. I'm ashamed that I lost my job. I don't have status. I'm ashamed I have to ask for help. I'm ashamed that what I did when I was drinking too much. I am ashamed that I have a child with an addiction or a child with special needs. And when I walk in the grocery store, people don't know what to say to me. So they turn around and they walk away. Fear, sadness, shame. So step number one, what I call accepted, is to accept the facticity of your situation. Like say out loud that this is one of the reasons I asked you the question. Okay, to say, I'm sad. That's incredibly empowering. That leads to the second, so how do people deal? So then I would say to you in these conversations, okay, well, let me ask you, how are you dealing with your sadness? I talk about it with my wife and my brother. So some people talk about it. A lot of people like to write it down. There's some power in writing it down. A lot of people do kind of what I do, which is I call buckle down, like shut up and go to work. You know, when I feel fear, I would say it consumes me a lot. It's like, stop complaining and go to work. But 80%, eight zero, use rituals in some way. Hmm. Some external gesture. They hold a memorial service. They bury something in the backyard. They hang up a flag. They wear a particular piece of clothing. They get a tattoo. I talked to a woman, Lisa Ray Rosenberg. She went through an awful year. She was a bone marrow donor to her brother. She had a fight and became estranged with her mother. She went on 52 first dates. She actually made a spreadsheet of everything that she wore on the first dates because she only went on seven second dates and she didn't want to wear the same thing on the, on the second date with one person that she had done with the other one. And she's just like, this isn't working. So she said, what's my biggest fear? Heights. She jumped out of an airplane. I talked to a guy in Kansas who'd been in a, a loveless marriage for 30 years. He got out of that marriage, came out as gay, went to a sweat lodge to literally kind of sweat out, schwitz out, if you will, the old life. So what these rituals are is that they are gestures to yourself and to those around you that you're going through a life transition and that it's difficult for you. It's almost like a statement to everybody involved that you're now doing this and you're saying goodbye to that old life. But here's something interesting, Dan. I actually think it may be the culture's I didn't code for this, so I'm not stating it, but I'm speculating. I actually, maybe the cultures have something that are good at and bad at. Because I think when the pandemic first hit, that we've all been bad at saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. That we all clung to the idea that we were going back. And that's why I think that this has been more difficult than it necessarily needs to be. And I think that now that we realize that we're not going back, I feel like what the country needs collectively is some ritual to mourn not just the dead. If we were mourning the dead, that would be an opportunity to mourn all of our lives that are not coming back. The in-person school, the seeing our loved ones, the going out to eat, the having feeling like you had some agency and control of your lives. We have this need for ritual. And I think it's aching because we have not been doing it in the pandemic. Mm. It's one of the tools that's very powerful. A way to say that old life, as much as I might have liked it, is not coming back. I need to put it behind me. There's a reason that religion for 3,000 years has been built on rituals is because it has worked. And as someone who's interested in religion, I feel like saying we've lost something by turning our back on religion the way we have. But people seem to understand it intuitively. Their bodies seem to crave it, which is why people do these rituals, even though they often don't identify them as rituals. That's super interesting. So you mentioned seven tools. I think we've touched on at least two. Yeah, we've done two. So these two are associated with the, the long goodbye. Let's go, let's just stick with it chronologically. So then you're in this messy middle and you've said goodbye, but there's still habits and patterns of your old life that are sticking around. And we got to get rid of some of those, okay? So that's why the next one is shedding it, okay? And so people shed certain things. Could be an attachment to money. It could be getting up every day and putting a tie or a pair of high heel shoes and going to work. It could be 
of sitting down with a loved one who's not there. It could be walking if you don't have your life. So you have to shed certain habits. And what's interesting about this is some of those habits people like that they just can no longer do. You can't see your loved one, your aging parents if they are not there anymore. Or you can't have a conversation if they have mental impairment. Or you can't, in my case, walk when I had cancer. I was on crutches for two years. So there were lots of things that I couldn't do. You have to shed that. But people also, it turns out, shed things that they didn't like about themselves. Okay? So there might be a habit that you have that you didn't like. Maybe you're a people pleaser. Maybe you drank too much. I talked to a woman, Lee Wentz, who went through a really difficult year compelled her back to my pileup to leave a marriage that she was unhappy with. And then she ultimately left a job. And she said, I had to shed the habit of every time I walked in the door, because I was so unhappy, I opened the fridge and started eating. Mm -hmm. And so she said, I'm in a pileup. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to add something to the pile that I wanted to change. And she finally stopped yo-yo dieting, broke her patterns and lost 60 pounds. So peak something about yourself that you didn't like and use this as an opportunity because you're in this state of change, you're in this life transition, say, I'm going to get rid of that. That's what comes next. And what that does is open your way to one of the things, I mean, maybe I should have seen this coming, but it was a bit of a surprise to me, astonishing acts of creativity. People at the bottom of their lives, I mean, the bottom of your life. I mean, think of everything that's gone bad for you and like multiply it times 10. Turn to incredible acts of creativity. They sing. They dance, they paint. You know, I talked to a woman who was involved in a faculty scandal at Emory, lost her job, lost her relationship. She started painting birdhouses. Then she went to the local corner art fair and she started selling them. And now she gives them to galleries. I talked to a woman who was a writer at Fox News, left Fox News, denounced her conservatism, changed her political beliefs, went through a depression. She said she started playing ukulele because it was forgiving. <laughs> and everything sounds good on the ukulele. And she ukuleleed her way through her depression. I talked to a woman, Helen Kim, in Alabama, who had stomach cancer. She was the caretaker. Her husband didn't want to take care of her. She leaves the, the husband, retires from her job teaching chemistry at a university in Alabama, remembered that she had a childhood dream of being a ballerina that her hard-driving Asian-American mother didn't want her to do. And so she starts taking adult ballet. I talked to a man named Zachary Herrick, who was born black in Kansas and adopted by a white family, wandered through life, ended up in the military. He had his face shot off by the Taliban. 31 surgeries between the tip of his nose and the tip of his chin, including having his tongue sewn back on. He was multiple times suicide ideation on the verge of taking his own life. His mother moves from Kansas to help him recover. And the mother says, you should start cooking, Zach. So he starts cooking. He's like, I bake salmon now. Like, the girls love it when I go on dates. Then he starts writing poetry. And then he starts painting. And he's describing this splattering paint on the canvas. He's like, you know that guy, Jackson Pollock? Like him. I'm like, wait a minute, whoa. If I talked to your high school football playing self in Indiana and said, like, you're going to like start writing poetry and, and, and poaching salmon and like splattering paint on the canvas, he was, I would have thought it was stupid. So I used to get out my hostility by splattering the enemy with bullets. Now I splatter the canvas with paint. So people turn to incredible acts of creativity and it's what creativity has meant from the opening phrase of the Bible. There's chaos and then God creates order. We are creating ourselves anew. And people, mostly people, I would say, who don't think of themselves as creative. What did we do when the pandemic first hit? It was almost like the cliche of cliches. What did we all do? We baked. Soda bread. Yeah. <laughs> Bingo. We sourdoughed our way through the pandemic. And I have to say, I'm not sure I was the only person in America who was not surprised, but this is creativity. Like getting your hands in and making something new is, again, your mind and bodies and souls way of saying you have imagination. You can imagine that bread or that birdhouse or that splatter painting being good. It's the same mirror, back to the mirror neurons, of imagining that you can make yourself anew. Incredible acts of creativity. So create it. Try something new is one of these tools in this toolkit of how to navigate like transition. You want to just keep going with the other ones? I'll keep going. I don't even need to throw questions at you. Just keep going. Well, <laughs> it's funny because I said something earlier I wanted to I'll get to the last two in a second because 
there are kind of two tools for each of the phases. So we have accepted and um, market with the first one, and we have shed it and created, and we'll get to the last one in a second. But one of them is not associated with time because people kind of do it all three, or they just do it once, and that is share it. Find someone to go through it with. Because one of the things, I remember this one had cancer, Dan. I would sit in my home in Brooklyn. I was on crutches for two years. I didn't leave the bed for a year because I had so much chemo. And, you know, my body was just being destroyed in order to save itself. And I'd look out the window and I'd, you know, you're not on crutches. You don't have cancer. Like, you don't know what it's like. You feel incredibly alone and isolated and scared. You just feel alone. Don't be alone. Find someone to share it with. But here was the revelation. Again, I was asking people, I'm about to ask you, like, what kind of advice from a friend or a loved one was most helpful? And before I tell you the categories that turn on, let me just ask you, the moment you're in your right now, have you gotten a piece of advice from a friend, mentor, or loved one that's been especially helpful for you? Yes. My friend, Josh, who has already buried his mother and has an aging father. When I was at a particularly difficult moment of my parents aging, he said something to the effect of, do not overlook the sweetness. That there is sweetness in this that you will feel for your parents as disorienting and horrifying and as it often is. Don't overlook that part. That's been a really great way to reorient myself. So what I discovered in this answer to this question is that people have different kind of phenotypes for advice. What kind of support from friends or loved ones or mentors they respond to. So I ended up kind of coding for this because that's kind of how my mind works. And so some people like comforters. I love you, Dan. You'll get through it. I believe in you. Some people like what I call nudgers, which is what you just described. I loved you, Dan, but why don't you think about this? Right? Or maybe you should start dating again. Or maybe it's time to go on LinkedIn and start looking for a job, right? Or maybe you need to exercise a little bit more. Or maybe you need to reach out to that person and reconcile. So some people like nudgers. Some people like, and I'm a bit like this, actually, some people like slappers, and I came up with this word because I was talking to someone and she was saying, yeah, I, was, I went through this period, I lost both of my parents and I thought I was going to take over this company and I didn't get the job. And I was just whining to a friend and my, the friend just slapped me upside the face like Cher uh, to Nicolas Cage in, in Moonstruck twice and said, get over yourself and stop complaining and like move on with your life. So some people like that. I love you, Dan, but enough. Okay, I'm tired of listening to this. This is the fourth time we've talked and you need to go do this and stop complaining all the time. So people kind of have these phenotypes. And so kind of my advice to people, my nudging people, is don't assume that the kind of advice you respond to is what the person you're talking to wants. The best way I could describe this is to talk about me as a dad. So I have identical girls, as you know, Eden and Tyvee. Eden for the Garden of Eden and Tyvee for Tyvee Island in Georgia, where I grew up. And I'm a writer. It's <laughs> been for a long time. And now they're in high school and they want nothing to do with my advice. But when they were in middle school, they would bring their papers to me. And I could never guess what they wanted. And finally, I started to say, well, what do you want? And so I would ask this question. Do you want me to tell you how good it is? Or do you want me to help you make it better? And kind of we went through every iteration. And then finally, we discovered that like the best answer for us was both. <laughs> like, I want, you to, I want you to come for me. I want you to tell me that it's good. And then I want you to nudge me and make it better. So my advice to people is don't go alone. But don't assume and feel free to say to somebody, I don't need advice. I just need love. Mm -hmm. Or I don't just need love. I need help. <laughs> Point me in the right direction. But again, think of this as a thing and let's break it down into the component parts and try to get better at it. So share it is one of them. And so the last two are mostly associated with the new beginning. And one is to unveil it. You're through it now. We finally have this new you. So let's come up. One of the things I ask people were, tell me three personal projects, right? Three things now that you're back found in the groove again, like start some new projects, okay? Rituals turn out to be very powerful at the end, not just the beginning, as a way to mark that you're through it. I talked to a lawyer who was a high-powered lawyer, was diagnosed in his 40s with Parkinson's. 
And in the beginning, he wanted to fight it. He needed to exercise. He ran, I'm not making this up, seven marathons on seven continents in seven days as a fundraiser for the Parkinson's Association. He got a team of people and they hired a plane and they raised a lot of money. And at the end, he was through this. He now, because for a long time, he suffered quietly, didn't let anybody know. Then he did this big gesture to raise money and decide, you know what? It's time to tell my colleagues. My dad has Parkinson's and he went through this too. But the beginning, he didn't want to tell anybody because he didn't want people to know or to treat him differently. And he got to a point where he couldn't keep it quiet anymore. So in the case of this lawyer, he got a tattoo that at the end of this, it was a way I got through this period. I'm now accepting and I'm now going to share it. So people use all sorts of rituals. I liken it. I don't know if you know the Japanese. I used to live in Japan, as you know. And uh, they have that Daruma doll, those paper mache red and black dolls. And you buy them blank and you paint with uh, ink one eye when you start a project. And then you paint the second eye at the end. It's called opening the second eye. So that's when you unveil your new self, think of Lisa Ludovici with the LinkedIn profile. So you're now going through it. And then the last one gets us back to where this whole conversation started. And it's update your personal story. It's to understand that you have fundamentally a story about your life that you were telling yourself. And as you get through one of these life transitions, you want to add a new chapter of your life that says you went through a difficult time. You got through it. And the key there is to find something constructive from this time. It sounds like finding the meaning in the situation is important. A life quake is fundamentally a meaning vacuum. It kind of sucks all of the basic ways that we make meaning in our lives out of our lives. So a life quake is a meaning vacuum. And what a life transition fundamentally is, is a meaning making exercise. It's a way to construct the meaning out of the meaning vacuum. I like this kind of minor old fashioned, I call old fashioned things bringing them back, but a minor idea from sociology from the 1980s called an autobiographical occasion. The reason it was a minor thing is because the person who came up with it, Margaret Zimmerman, said that an autobiographical occasion is a job interview. It's the first time you see a doctor. It's a first date when you have the occasion to tell your life story. Any life transition is an autobiographical occasion. 80% of the people that I asked this question have said that it was a narrative event where they had to rethink and revisit the basic way that they tell their story. I used to be this, and now I am that. I used to be a person with living parents. Now I have dying parents or dead parents. I used to be a married person. Now I'm not a married person. I used to be a person who drank all the time. Now I'm sober. By the way, one in four of the stories I did had addiction in some way. You have to rewrite that story in a fundamental way. Like that story, like if people, like, you know, I want to say, like, stop what you're doing right now and listen to that story that's going on in your head, like who you are, where you came from. If I said to you right now, you have to rush to the hospital because you have a loved one there. You would be telling a story, like who that loved one is and how you know them and what they mean to you. That story you tell yourself about who you are, that's not part of you. That is you in a fundamental way. Life is the story that you tell yourself. That's one thing we've learned through neuroscience is that our brains are wired to create stories. But we think of these stories, oh my God, we think of these stories as there's a hero, you know, and there's a happy ending. Because we want our life to be a fairy tale. But the wolf shows up. It's the wolf that makes it a fairy tale. That halfway through the story, it's a wolf or a dragon or an ogre or a pandemic or a tornado or a downsizing or a death. You can't banish the wolf and you don't want to banish the wolf because if you banish the wolf, you banish the hero. And the hero becomes the hero because the hero figures out how to defeat the wolf. So life quakes are feature, not bug. Oh, absolutely. That's why this book is called Life is in the Transition. This is a William James line, back to my idea of trying to revive outdated ideas. William James, the father of modern psychology, says a hundred years ago, life is in the transitions as much as in the terms connected. And that's what I'm saying, if, because here's the thing we haven't talked about, just how long these take. And the answer, five years. 
And I talked to incredibly articulate people, and I would say, how long did this transition take? And everybody, uh, um, oh, good. I, uh, 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 and the people got incredibly tongue-tied. And they were kind of, three years? Five years? Seven years? And I'm like, guess what? The average and the most common answer was five years. And so here's the thing. If you're going to go through three or five of these life quakes in a year, and they're going to take four, five, six years, that's 25 years. That's half of your adult life. You're going through a life transition. If you look at it as a period you have to grit and grind your way through, you are wasting half of your life. And so, yes, it is a feature, not a bug. If you look on it as a bug and you get angry at it. By the way, that's why I'm grumpy about the word resilience, because actually even the word resilience is an industrial term from a spring. A spring would pop out and how resilient it was, was how it went back. Part of my grumpiness about resilience is, is it kind of normalizes the idea that we're going back. And some people may go back, but more of us are going sideways or forward or a different place altogether. And if we look at it as a period that we just have to suffer through until we go back, we are missing half of our lives. And we are missing what every great scripture, every great mythology, you know, Moses leading the Israelites, the Buddha goes into the wilderness, Hindus go into the forest, you name it, Odysseus, Orpheus, Hercules, they all go out into the wilderness. That's where the growth occurs. So I'm saying life is in the transitions. If you look at this period as one you're going to suffer with, you're going to suffer and you're not going to grow. If you look at it as this opportunity, it's going to be painful. I'm not trying to talk it through. I don't want to be Pollyanna at all. It's going to be tough. The messy middle is going to be messy. The long goodbye is going to be long. <laughs> the new beginning is going to be hard. But these are opportunities for growth and renewal. This is when the heroes are made. And if I've learned one thing, it's that we all have to be the hero of our own story. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at these periods as vital periods of our life. And instead of being overly excited or intimidated, understand, here we are, we're back at 10%. But you can take small steps, you can accumulate small wins. I have seven tools. Everybody does some of them naturally. Nobody did all of them and everybody wanted to get better at it. And so what I'm here to say is whatever you're going through right now, I was where you are. And I met these people and a lot of them were in worse. Some of them were better. Some of them were different. Some of them were similar. They didn't just give me hope, Dan. They gave me practical things that I can do tonight, tomorrow, one a week from now and one three months from now. This is one of the number one things people are saying, I'm going to put this on my shelf because there's something I needed now and I'm going to need something different three months from now. So whatever you're struggling with, you come on this journey with me, you're going to find people that are where you were. You're going to find things you can do so that whatever you're dealing with, whatever life transition you're in, we could do it a little bit better and a lot more effectively. Like we can get through this. There is knowledge out there. We can beat back the worlds together. Well said. That's a beautiful place to leave it. Bruce, excellent job. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. It's great to have this conversation with you. Thank you for all you're doing. Big thanks to Bruce. And big thanks, as always, to the team who work incredibly hard to make this show a reality. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Sheshik from Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wirtel is our production coordinator. We get a ton of wisdom from our TPH colleagues, such as Jen Point. Nate Toby, Ben Rubin, Liz Levin. And as always, big thank you to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Wednesday with a deep Dharma take on this subject of life transitions. Our guest is Philip Moffat. <laughs> <laughs>